Look with me, please. Second epistle of John. And we'll just read verses 9 through 11 as we conclude this portion of this, the main body of this epistle, actually, beginning in verse 7 through 11. And last week we looked at verses 7 and 8. And we'll, we'll read through some of this again, but begin with verse 9 this evening. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Last week, as I mentioned, we began the study of the third division of the second epistle of John, which consists of verses 7 through 11. And we have discovered over the past several weeks of our study of this epistle that within this epistle, John emphasizes the importance and also the necessity of both love and truth. And this division, verses 7 through 11, constitutes the body of this epistle, but it also includes a serious warning. Look again at verse 7 with me, and we'll read through verse 11 again. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves. Here's the warning. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Now verse, verse 7 begins with John's warning within this letter. And again, this makes up, this is only 13 verses long. And again, the, the verse divisions, the divisions were added, of course, after time. John didn't write it in this fashion, in this manner. And so only being 13 verses, though, we see it's a very short letter, especially in comparison to the first epistle of John, which of course includes five chapters. And so, and many verses within each chapter. And so we recognize this being a small, uh, a very small letter, and verses 7 through 11 make up the body of the letter, the main portion of the letter. The, 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 the beginning, of course, has an introduction, and those he addresses, and then he gets to the body of the letter here, verses 7 through 11, and then 11 and 12, I'm sorry, verses 12 and 13 kind of close out the letter. And so it's very brief in, in, its, in its subject matter, but yet we find that John emphasizes uh, that we are to walk in love and we are to walk in truth when he says, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. Um, And and we see that here in verse 6. Then coming into verse 7, he says, for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So here John is warning against those deceivers that come into the world in contrast to those who are walking in love and in the truth of God's commandments. And and as he's already mentioned in verse 4, for instance, again, he said, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. And so he goes on and speaks of this and then says, again, provides this warning in verse 7. Now, John emphasizes, again, walking in love and truth when stating in verse 6, this is love that we walk 
after his commandment. So here you have love, here you have truth, and he says this is love. He's defining love in this context as walking in his commandments. Now we know the commandment, of course, is that we love one another, even as Christ hath loved us, or God hath loved us for Christ's sake. We know that we are to love as Christ loves us, and we know that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, according to the Old Testament, which is from the beginning, as John reminds them of in the first and second epistle. And so we recognize that these are the commandments of God, but the commandments of God are not limited to that alone. But in this context, he's saying that if we are loving one another according to the commandments of God, we are following after God's truth. And of course, this is demonstrative as well of a love that we have for God, which is evidence of a love that God has demonstrated and and bestowed unto us. And so this love comes from God. It's within us. It is demonstrated to others. And he says we are walking in God's commandments because, of course, we love God because he first loved us. And therefore, we love others because of God's love within us. And so this all is connected together as John so clearly taught in his first epistle. In verse 8, he says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Scripture has much to say, as we saw last week, concerning the rewards which God will give those who faithfully serve him. However, our service to the Lord, as I mentioned last week, should never be simply based on what we can gain as his servants, but rather our focus should remain on the truth of the worth of the God whom we serve. So we should not be focused on what we get out of this. We should be focused on the truth of that, that which God deserves, and there, but we do receive as well as God's blessing. Now, all the rewards are taught in Scripture. They are not the emphasis throughout the Scriptures, even though some would tend to seem to make them to be. Now, our study this evening continues not only this main portion of this epistle, but also the warning that John provides continues in verses 9 through 11 as we've read. So let's begin again at verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now within verse 9, John does what he is so good at doing, as previously demonstrated within John's first epistle. Within this verse, John makes a distinctive contrast. He begins by explaining that those who transgress and do abide in the doctrine of or, and do not abide in the doctrine of Christ do not have God. So those who transgress and do not abide in, God's, in the doctrine of Christ, and the teaching of Christ, they do not have God. Now the contrast of this statement is realized in the second part of the verse. Still verse 9, in which John then declares that those who do abide in the doctrine of Christ have both the Father and the Son. So let's dissect this verse somewhat that we understand the impact of this contrast which John makes even in verse 9 alone. First he begins, whosoever transgresseth. Now, the verb translated transgresseth in this verse means to break or to go aside. Now, while it is true to say that sin is sin, in other words, I mean, we live, of course, in a, a day and in the previous decades in which it seems as though sin is somewhat categorized many times or compartmentalized, and you sort of find certain sins are apparently seemingly worse than others, and that's not necessarily the case, though there are certain sins that definitely carry a greater consequence to them, or penalty, in the sense of a a, a physical sense, in terms of a societal sense, but yet also, as far as God is concerned, uh, every man is guilty of sin, of unbelief specifically, and the wages of sin is death, and there's no 
categorizing that. Sin is sin in that respect. But yet also, there are specific sins that are listed and, and different uh, uh, manners in which sin is talked about throughout Scripture as we understand. And so, when we think of this statement that John makes, whosoever transgresseth, it means to break or to go aside. And so, when we consider this, that sin is sin, we must also understand there is a context to John's statement in this verse, as there also is in his previous epistle when speaking of transgression. Now, the verb transgresseth, meaning break or go aside, the question which must be answered concerning the specific context in which John makes this statement is simply this. What does one break or from what does one go aside? Because this is not talking about generalized sin here in the sense of, Everybody does wrong. Well, of course everyone does wrong. Everyone does sin. But here he's speaking specifically concerning going aside from our breaking, but then what is one breaking or from what are they going aside? John further explains to what he references concerning that from which these individuals break away or go aside when he says in the verse, verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. The verb abideth means to remain or to stay and reside. And the noun doctrine means instruction or teaching. The word translated abideth in this epistle of John is the same word which John used in his gospel record. Jesus, when he's speaking, said in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. It's the same word. As the branch there cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do no thing. Nothing. There's nothing you can do spiritually, eternally, apart from me, Jesus says. And, and there's a reason for that as well. As I've given you an example many times, when you consider the, the vine as Jesus is referencing in here, and by the way, this is important to understand Isaiah 5 if you're going to read John 15, because in Isaiah 5, the scripture clearly states that God is the husbandman and that Israel, in this case, Old Testament Israel, that they were the, the, the vine and that this vine that, that God had provided everything necessary, he says, for this vine to bring forth good fruit and it brought forth wild grapes. And he's saying, Israel, you are the vine and yet everything that was necessary, he says, what more could I have done? In other words, what more could have possibly been done that would have produce an environment for you to uh, produce or for you to bring forth good fruit and yet you bring forth wild grapes you brought forth bad fruit and then Jesus in John 15 if you recall he doesn't say I am the vine most people usually quote this passage and say that Jesus says I am the vine you are the branches that's not what he says he says I am the true vine true in contrast to what True in contrast to Israel, that was a bad vine. <laughs> they were not the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. And here Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he talks about the father's the husband. He says, and then he goes on, of course, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Right, abide in me and I in you. For without me you can do nothing. And so this vine is Christ. And of course, our life source is from him. So as branches, we are not... We do not produce fruit, we bear the fruit that he is producing through us. And if you take the branch away from the vine, it's dead. It will dry up. There's nothing good going to come from it other than it just be burnt. 
and used as fuel for fire. But when the branch is connected to the vine, when it is drawing its source of life from the vine, now the vine and the branch are really inseparable in, in, in the terms of the life flowing through them. Yes, you see the branch extending from the vine, but you can't distinguish the life that's in the branch apart from the life that's in the vine because the life in the branch is the life of the vine. And so it's flowing through that vine, which is the, or through the branch, which then produces the fruit. But the branch is not producing. The vine is producing through the branch by means of the branch. And so Jesus is saying, apart from me, without me, you can do no thing because you have no life apart from me. I am life. I am the source of life, Jesus is saying, and I produce through you. And so the verb used in John 15, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, it cannot produce fruit, but yet it bears the fruit of Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches. But he began by saying, I'm the true vine. Then he goes on to say, I am the vine, you are the branches, and through me, fruit is produced. But the same word here, abide, this verb is the same verb, remain or stay or reside, as John uses in his epistle here, when he says, and abideth not in the doctrine, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. Now, this makes a whole lot more sense when you understand John 15, because when you understand John 15, the only way you have God is when the life of Christ is flowing through you, when it's He who's dwelling in you. Apart from Him, you don't have God. You don't have the life of God in you apart from Jesus Christ. And so this makes perfect sense when you understand the context. Now, the word used is the same as I mentioned, and he further, John, Jesus further explained this truth of the evidence that's being spoken of here, present, when one is in a relationship with him in John chapter 8. So he further explains this in John 8, when Jesus said to those Jews which believed in him, John 8, 31, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. This is exactly what John is saying. Whosoever transgresseth, whosoever committeth sin, practices sin, is the servant of sin. Whoever breaks away from, Notice the word transgresseth. Remember I told you it literally, it, it literally means to break or go aside. So he that is broken from Christ, he that is separated from Christ, he who strays away from the doctrine and teaching instruction of Christ does not have God. And that's what John is stating here. Within this first portion, John simply says, all those who break away or go aside from the instruction of Jesus Christ, not remaining, not continuing, not abiding, not residing in his teaching, do not have God, or you could say, do not have a relationship with God. And again, it makes perfect sense in light of John 15. If you are in the vine, his life flows through you. If you are separated from the vine, there's no relationship. There's no connection. There is nothing that joins these two together when they are separated, except one be grafted in. And by the way, who does the grafting? Romans 11, concerning the Jew and Gentile, this is taught. But who does the grafting? The husbandman. The branch doesn't graft itself. 
the husbandman grafts the branch into the vine that it might receive life and be fruitful. The Lord provides us, and John does as well, beautiful imagery here in reality and gives us clear, distinct understanding of how this is all worked out in and through our lives. He goes on to say in verse 9, He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now within the second part of this verse, verse 9, John makes a contrast between those who have not and have God through a relationship with with God, or through Christ, of course. Now the verb abideth is the same word translated in the previous portion of the verse, so it's the same word, as, as is also the noun doctrine and the verb hath. Now, I didn't mention hath a moment ago, but when he says hath not God, but then here he says in contrast, he that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now, originally he said he hath not God. Now he says he hath both the Father and the Son. Now, the verb hath is in the present tense and indicative mood. And this grammatical distinction has significant importance. The present tense, as you probably know, portrays an action in process with no estimation of completion. In other words, it refers to an action in process that continues in process. So it's something that's already set in motion, but yet there's no estimation of its completion. It's continual. It is its present tense. It's happening now and continues to happen. The indicative mood asserts something is actual, opposed to something being possible or contingent based upon intention. So the indicative mood is saying that this is actually so, this is real, this isn't just potential, or this isn't just a possibility, or it's not contingent even upon one's intentions concerning the matter. So this relationship is an example in reality of what would be referred to as the principle of causation, or what many may be more familiar with, the term cause and effect. John declared that those who continue in the teaching of Jesus are in an actual, indicative mood, are in an actual or real relationship with God, and that this relationship will continue... As well, one state of following the teaching, or as will one state of following the teaching and instruction of Jesus. So again, when I speak of cause and effect, the cause is the truth of the relationship one has with God, while the effect is the result that this relationship produces. As demonstrated by one continuing to follow in the teaching of Jesus. So let's go back to verse 9 again. Whosoever transgresseth, whoever breaks away from and abideth not, continues not in the doctrine, the teaching or instruction of Christ, of the Messiah, the Anointed One, hath not, present tense does not have God, nor will they have God. They are not in a relationship with God, and they're not going to be in a relationship with God. As long as this is the marker of their life. Do you see the significance of this now? In other words, one says, well, I love the Lord, and yet their lives are just full of sin a continual unrighteousness and wickedness and sin. No, their present tense condition 
is made obvious or revealed by the lack of love for God and the things of God, the truth of God, the people of God. Now again, this does not mean that we do not sin, that we, we, do, not, we do not fall short, that we do not commit transgression against the Lord or His truth, but we're talking again about those who are continuing in this, this practice of it, as 1 John teaches us. So the cause and effect is, if one, John states this in his first epistle, if you recall with me. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. This again is cause and effect. Now he states it almost in a reversed order. Because we know John is not saying, okay, if you really do good at doing righteousness, then that makes you righteous. That's not what he says. Notice he says, he that doeth righteousness is righteous. Is is important there. That's a state of being verb. The state of being is he is righteous, therefore righteousness is the product of the position of righteousness. Just like he goes on to say that those that are wicked produce wickedness. Or those who produce wicked, those who act and live in wickedness do so because they are wicked. And so the point being here is cause and effect is stating the cause of one's wicked lifestyle is due to the condition they are presently in. And the cause or the effect, which is the righteousness within one's life, is caused by their relationship with Christ. Let's go back to John 15 for just a moment. Think of this with me. I am the true vine. My father's the husbandman. Ye are the branches. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. Except a man abide in me and I in him. If he does that, then he brings forth much fruit. But you can do nothing without me. If you are not abiding in me, continuing in me, then you bring forth nothing. And you are, you are burnt. You're cast into the fire. Because there's no value. It's a, it, it, it's a useless, lifeless branch. Here you have cause and effect. If we are producing or if we are bearing any fruit whatsoever, it, that's the effect. And the cause for that being is that we are in a life source, which is Christ himself, which now produces through us. But if there's no fruit being born, if there's no life present, that's the effect of the present state of our being, which is no life source. We are not drawing from any life source. And so this is what John is saying here. Now, when he states, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. So again, he's saying that those who, do not con- those who break away from, those who aren't residing and, uh, and, and continuing remaining in the teaching and instruction of Christ, that they presently do not have God, nor will they have God in that condition. But then in contrast, he says, he that abideth, he that remains and continues in the teaching and instruction of Christ, he hath, present tense, has, and no thought of this ever ending. Continually has both the Father and son. Now it's noteworthy that the first portion of this verse, John states that evidence, or the evidence that one is not in a relationship with God, he simply states, hath not God. Those who, who of course, are not remaining in truth, do not walk in truth, do not live in truth, they do not have God. But notice in contrast, when John speaks of the evidence of one who does have a relationship with God, he says this, he hath both the Father and Son. At first he says, oh, one who's not continuing in the doctrine of Christ, they don't have God. Now look, look at what he's actually implying here, inferring. He is stating, 
Okay, so many people may say, oh, I love God, but hear me. Apart from Christ and His truth, you have no relationship with God whatsoever. But those who are walking in the truth of Christ, he says they both, that that person has both the Father and the Son. Why would he include both here and not both in the previous statement? Well, obviously I think there's two reasons. First, as I just mentioned, there are those who would claim, I love God, I love God, I'm so glad God is so good, and yet have no mention or no relationship whatsoever with Christ. But the thing is, if you have no relationship with Christ, you have no relationship with God the Father either. But yet here he's saying if you're following in the truth of Christ, this is both a relationship with God and the Father and the Son. Let us remember as well that the only relationship one can have with the Father is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, to have one is to have the other. To be in relationship with one is to be in relationship with the other. In John 14, 6-11, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If he, ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Here Jesus is making it as clearly as he possibly can. He says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the Father, you've seen him in me. I and the Father are one, Jesus is saying. We are one. Hence, John would say, would he not, if you are not following in the truth of Christ, then you do not have a relationship with God the Father. But if you are following in the truth of Christ, you have a relationship with both the Father and the Son because to have a relationship with one is to have a relationship with the other. And you cannot separate that truth, these two in that truth. Only way, The only access we have to God the Father is through His Son, right? But if you know Jesus, you know the Father. And if you know the Father, it's only through Jesus you know the Father. And so that's what John is stating here. So within verse 9 of this second epistle of John, we discover that John continues to explain that there will be irrefutable evidence within the life of one who is in an authentic relationship with God the Father. You will be walking in the truth of Christ. Absolutely. Not meaning you never stray, not meaning that you never sin or fail, but the direction in which you walk is, is the same. I've said this many times that since I was born again at the, at the age of 12, God, God brought me to faith in Christ. And I have never turned around and went backwards. Never. I have stepped outside of faith. I have sinned. But I've never turned around and went back. How can I? Faith doesn't allow that. God does not allow that. I still sin and God corrects me and brings me back into step with Him in faith. But I've never turned around and started heading the opposite direction. It's never happened. And I, look, that's not a boastful statement of me. I'm telling you that's the grace of God and the faithfulness of God to perfect what he's begun. So don't misunderstand me. This isn't, I'm, I'm in no way boasting of something I've done or not done. Oh, I've sinned. And here's what I'm telling you. If this were not of God, I would be heading the other direction right away. 
and so would you. It is God who authors and perfects this work. Verse 10, verses 10 and 11. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not in your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. These two verses are separated by a colon. Notice that, if you will. Which grammatically means that the first independent clause is emphasized, explained, or clarified by the independent clause which follows. Colons are very important, and in Scripture specifically, because many times people will read a first portion of independent clause, and they'll read that independent clause, which means it stands alone on its own. It has subject and verb at least. And yet, then you'll see that they'll only stop there and never see the explanation or the clarification on the independent clause which follows that first independent clause. And that's very important. Again, let me show you a great example of that. I've shown you this before, but let's stop for a minute so you can see the significance of this. Look with me in John's Gospel real quickly, if you will. I did not intend to do this, but I think it's worthy to note this. And those in our class, of course, on Tuesday nights, I've mentioned this many times and referenced this, but not as many times in here with you. And so if you look at John chapter 1, this is a very, very familiar passage of Scripture and a verse that's quoted very often, but you rarely ever hear both verses quoted together. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Colon. Do you see that? Now, if you only stop there, what it appears as though the Scripture is saying that they received him. First, first, first look at verse 11. He came unto his own, his own received him not. So obviously the context here is he came unto the Jews and the Jews rejected him. We know that, right? And then the Jews cried out, crucify him, crucify him. But as many as did receive him, in contrast to the Jews, to them he gave, um, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So it's saying, okay, so they received him, apart from verse 11 too, by the way, kind of interesting. They received him, and whoever receives him, then God empowers them to be his son. And it all happens through belief. So it looks as though it, this is all initiated by someone receiving Jesus. Not even understanding the context of verse 11 and 12 together, Jew and Gentile. But then move on to verse 13, which clarifies this. Which were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So who received him? Those who were born of God. They weren't born by the will of the flesh. They were not born by blood lineage. They were not born by the will of man. This has nothing to do with man. It has to do with God birthing them. And therefore, they received him, and they have been given the power to become the sons of God. We have eternal life because of God's work here. And that's what John's clearly teaching. So colons are very important, and you see that demonstrated in, that verse, in those three verses, two verses specifically. So look, if you will, at verses 10 and 11 again of John, second epistle of John. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So in verse 10 he says, If any there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now John warns here that if anyone brings any teaching other than that of Christ, bring not this doctrine. What doctrine is he talking about? The doctrine of Christ, because he's already talked about those who abide not in the doctrine of Christ, but he that does abide in the doctrine of Christ, he's already, he's already clearly clarified this doctrine, and now he's referencing it as this doctrine. So what doctrine? The doctrine of Christ. When he speaks of the doctrine of Christ, he speaks, he's specifically speaking of the instruction and the teaching of Christ. Now, fundamentally speaking, in this context, 
because of what he's already dealt with in chapter or in the first epistle as well. The issue is that, as he even makes the argument in this epistle here, that there are those who claim that Christ came not in the flesh, remember? So this is, there are those who are refuting the validity of Jesus being the Christ, the anointed one, and that God literally sent his son into the flesh. And so this is an argument that's being had here. And John is stating, if any man come unto you and bring not this doctrine, the doctrine of Jesus, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now this is interesting because this bring, if any man brings, anyone brings any teaching other than that of Jesus Christ. Now notice, he doesn't say teaching about Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of Christ. Christ himself declared, he, Jesus himself declared that he was the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. These are truths that Christ declared and proclaimed, and now the apostles and disciples and those who are elders and teachers, they are continuing to declare this truth of Jesus Christ. It's not just talking about him, it's declaring his truth. Look, that's very important, you need to recognize that too. This is not saying that, that you know, if someone comes and and, and, and they don't talk about Jesus. No, this isn't talking about talking about Jesus. This is talking about teaching the very instruction and teaching of Jesus himself. This is us giving his message. Not, let me, let me clarify. This is not about men giving a, their message about Jesus. This is men declaring the message of Jesus. And there is a distinction between those two statements. Many people have messages about Jesus that are not the message of Jesus. You understand that, right? And that's what's being stated here. So John says, if one come to you in such a manner, do not receive him. And here he literally is saying that we are not to receive him, but also we are not to bid him Godspeed. And this literally means that we are not to greet him or wish him well. John warns that we are to refute and reject all teaching which is not that of Christ. I shared with someone just the other day, I said, since Jesus Christ is the primary person of all of Scripture, I don't have time to preach anything other than Jesus because there's no way I can exhaust Him in His Word. How could I ever come to a place or time or point in which I exhaust entirely the teaching of Christ in His Word? I can't. So that means, you know what? I have no time to teach or preach anything other than Jesus, period. And even in doing that all of my days, I will still not exhaust the teaching of Christ and His Word. It won't happen. So John is saying here, if someone comes to you with anything else, he says, you are to refute, you are to reject all teaching which is not that of Christ. And let me warn you of something. You need to have ears and, to hear and eyes to see and hearts to discern the difference between someone name-dropping Jesus and declaring the truth of Christ. Because again, there is a distinct difference in those two statements. He goes on to say in verse 11, For, and here's after the colon, he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. So John declares the reason we must deal so harshly with any teaching which is anti-Christ is for this reason. To receive or greet those who teach anything other than Jesus is to be a partaker in their wickedness or, or their false gospel, their false teaching. Now, that does not mean that we cannot refute and we cannot argue against or we cannot 
call out heresy or blasphemy for what it is. We can. John's not saying that. John is saying that we are not to receive into our homes, and this would be the church specifically, and church, house churches, of course, but we are not to receive into our homes those who are antichrist. And we are not to bid them Godspeed. We are not to greet them, nor are we to wish them well. You don't send some false teacher away saying, God bless you. No. May God not bless you, but may He bring you to repentance and faith. And so this is what John is dealing with. And you say, that's kind of a harsh way to deal with people, isn't it? Now, here's what we need to make a distinction in as well. John is not saying if someone does not align perfectly with you concerning all matters of Scripture, then you are to reject them and call them blasphemers. Of course not. There are areas of Scripture in which we don't all agree in every area of Scripture who've met here tonight. Not all of us in in every way. There's not one of us who absolutely would align in every detail of Scripture the same place. But we're not talking about that, and we're not talking about the gray areas. And Scripture does have some gray areas, by the way. Not all of it, but there are areas which are gray. People are afraid to say that too, but it's just true. Not all of it's black and white, period. It's not. God didn't give it to us that way. There's plenty of it that is black and white, but not all of it is black and white. And so the areas, especially those that are great, let me give you a great example of this. Are you ready? Eschatology, as by means of an example. There are all sorts of differing views on eschatology, and I have embraced probably a great number of the main ones at different times through my life. So I can't agree with myself concerning eschatology. So how could you possibly, or you and I, completely agree on that I cannot even absolutely agree with myself on because I just don't know. And neither do you and neither does anyone else. So if someone does not align with me on where I happen to be today in eschatology, which could be different tomorrow, (laughs) then the fact of the matter is that doesn't mean that they're blasphemers and they're antichrist. Of course not. And here's the question. What does that have anything, how does that have anything to do with who Christ is, what he has done or will do, And what does it have to do with salvation or redemption as a whole? Nothing. It's going to be as God has purposed for it to be. And however that is, that's how how it is and what it is. And the areas I don't understand, I will not be dogmatic on them. And I will not hold others accountable to see things the way that I see them. And I will have fellowship and enjoy fellowship with them as long as they are Christocentric. Christ-centered. Does that make sense? And there's other areas as well, not just eschatology. There are even matters of practical truths that we live out in our daily lives that you will not agree on. But that does not mean that we cannot have fellowship one with another and that we cannot be Christ-centered and that we cannot be fruitful in the faith and, and edify one another in the faith. And that's what we must understand. So when John says this, he's not saying, oh, if someone doesn't see it the way you see it, then you, 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 know, you're, you don't, even, don't even invite them in your house. No, of course not. He is saying, though, if they are anti-Christ anti the teaching of Christ, the instruction of Christ, then you have nothing to do with them apart from refuting and rebuking. Refuting their false doctrine and rebuking them for their false doctrine. So John, again, is not instructing us to draw lines isolating ourselves from those who do not agree with us, but rather is instructing us that those who are not proclaiming Jesus or those who are proclaiming any teaching other than Jesus and His teaching are anti-Christ and we are to have no part with them because we are not of them, and they are not of us. Let me remind you of this truth. 
Jesus did not come to divide his church. He came and divided the believer from the unbeliever. But he did not divide believers. And again, I refer back to when Jesus says, the disciples come to Jesus, those of the twelve, and they say to him, Oh Lord, we saw today those who were casting out demons in thy name, in thy power, in your, in your power, in your name, in your authority. And we forbade them because they weren't of us. And what did Jesus say? Do not forbid them. Why? If they are not, or if they are for me, then they are not against me. But wait a minute, these aren't part of the twelve. They're not part of our church. <laughs> they, they're doing things and they're not walking with you as we're walking with you. And look at what they're doing. How could they possibly? This can't be of God. Are you following? No, that's not true because Jesus himself rebuked the disciples for calling them down and saying, no, if they are not against me, then they are for me. And so the reality here is that if someone is following after Christ, we have fellowship with them. But if someone teaches that which is other than Christ and his teaching, then we have no part with them and they have no part with us. And John says, if you bid them Godspeed, if you receive them, if you bless them, if you, if, um, quote-unquote, attempt to fellowship with them, you are guilty of their wickedness because you've become a partaker of their wickedness. He says you, you rebuke them, you refute their doctrine, you rebuke them, and you do not wish them well. You do not give them a God bless you along the way. But you call them out for the blasphemy and heresy that they speak. But this isn't talking about believers in Christ who are following after Jesus. This is talking about those who are antichrist, who may very well name drop Jesus, but still they're not of Christ. And they're not declaring the message and truth of Christ. So here you have the warning, and John is warning specifically concerning this matter before he absolutely concludes the letter. This is the body of the letter. This is the emphasis of what John was saying here in verses 7 through 11. Many deceivers are come who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh or Jesus is not the Christ. And this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, he says. Recognize whoever transgresses, leaves, and does not remain in the teaching and instruction of Jesus. He does not have a relationship with God. Those who are in a relationship with continuing the instruction and teaching of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, beware for those who come, and if you, don't, you are not to have any part with them, you are not to receive them, you are not to wish them well, you are not to God bless them along their way. Because you have no part with them and they have no part with you. Why would you, quote unquote, wish well, if that's the only way I know how to say it, bless someone, let's say, or wish well someone who is propagating anti-Christ teaching? No, you call it out for what it is and rebuke them for doing so. So John warns here, this is important. But those who continue, notice the evidences here he gives because this is important as well as we've emphasized tonight in the main body of this letter. Those who continue remain in the teaching of Christ. They have relationship with both God the Father and God the Son because this is an inseparable relationship. To have a relationship with one is to have a relationship with the other. And you can't have it any other way. 
But notice here what John is dealing with. Oh, people who love God. How about the Jews, for instance, in John's day? We love God, but we reject Jesus. And John's saying, no! That is anti-Christ. In reality, is it not? Of course it is. 